Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today I'm joined by Dr. Amalinda Savirani to discuss the prospects for progressive politics in Indonesia. Dr. Savirani is the coordinator of the PhD program in the Faculty of Political and Social Sciences at Universitas Gajamada and one of the authors of a study on the Indonesian Solidarity Party, PSI, and the significance of its 2019 campaign for progressive politics in Indonesia. As Dr. Savirani and her colleagues write, PSI was a new party for the 2019 election that stood out as having a female face, ranging from the prominence of women amongst party leaders having women as almost half of its candidates, and in tackling controversial issues in Indonesia of equality for women. The party gained a number of sub-national seats, but at the national level, where parties must meet a 4% electoral threshold to occupy any seats, PSI fell well short with only 1.89% of the vote. We'll link to that article on the blog page for this episode. In today's episode, I'll discuss with Dr. Savirani what it means to be progressive in an Indonesian context, how large the support base for progressive politics is, and what the experience of PSI in 2019 reveals about the prospects to advance progressive politics in Indonesia via elections. Linda, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Thank you for having me, Dave. Now it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, can I start by asking you, who are Indonesia's progressives and what are the key tenets of progressive liberal thought in contemporary Indonesia? Usually, or generally, what we call liberals, or the way the Indonesian understand liberals is in terms of their thinking. For example, that you are, or progressive, I mean, if you are being associated with the leftist, with the left, or with the ideas of being critical with the market system and the economy. That's what usually we call progressive. But at the same time, it doesn't really connect with the way the Western understand the progressive in terms of uh, political economic system. Usually it terms in terms of ideas. So for instance, the group of progressive Islamic movement, for instance, they will be very much into these uh, interpretations of what we, most of Indonesian who are basically dominantly Muslim, you know, following the traditions or when they say progressive, let's be progressive, they basically try to break down the all conservatism. So that's usually two things, right? Two things in terms of being critical and being progressive in terms of uh, ideas of criti- critical to the way the market or the state operate and, you know, being liberal in, in terms of economic economic sense, but at the same time uh, on the way of thinking, progressive in the thinking of breaking the conservative values and practices. And I mean, how large is the support base for that sort of progressive liberal thought in Indonesia? Basically, they, they are the urban educated Indonesians who, you know, with the uh, who are exposed and be, you know, exposed both as experience to abroad and also to ideas from the books. Even though the number of the urban populations keep increasing, like over the 2030, 
World Bank data shows that probably the Indonesian living in the urban area will be 60%, right? But the, if we focus specifically on in terms of idea or the social support, they're basically much smaller, like those who are going abroad for the school and return to Indonesia or being in a very, very small circle. So I guess in terms of population, it's very small, but they are dominant in the media because, you know, Twitter or through <coughs> Facebook and, you know, expressing their ideas. I mean, do you have a sense if we were to look at, say, other Southeast Asian countries or other countries that democratized around the same time as Indonesia, even other Western nations, how would the support base for progressive thought in Indonesia compare to, to other countries? Let's take, for instance, other Southeast Asian countries like Thailand. There are also many of the progressive politics living in, in Bangkok and those who are involved in the democratic movement mostly are the uni- university students or led by university students. So that's quite similar with Indonesia. Like students also become supporting main supporters of this idea, uh, university students, I mean, and both mostly are living in the cities like Jakarta or or the or Yogyakarta, Bandung, um, Makassar, Medan, right? But again, you, you really can see the urban setting of this population this, as a social base for a supporter of the progressive politics in Indonesia. And first, they are young. Second, they are educated and mostly, mostly, I think, middle class. So it's quite rare or maybe there's some, but it's quite rare to find that uh, rural, uneducated and lower class uh, or working class because they've been busy with other things like making a living to be part of this a support base of for the, for the liberal or progressive uh, thought. Sure, sure. And I mean, I guess an association with the middle class, with urban areas, um, as you point out with the example of Thailand, is, is far from unique to Indonesia. Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, I guess on top of that general trend, um, are there specific circumstances, you know, the, the history of authoritarianism, the destruction of the left through the, the political genocide of 1965 that contribute to, to such a small support base for progressive liberal thought in Indonesia? Or, or is this really more reflective of that broader trend that you've highlighted? I think there is a historical roots as well. In the 1950s, just after the Indonesian got independence, some of the small circle of elites established a party with similar name like the one that we will discuss called Partai Socialist Indonesia or PSI. That's the old PSI. There are, you know, Shahrir was the key of these parties and also his network. And again, we can really see the similar features of them. First, they're educated. Second, they are they live in the urban area. But what make it different at the time is that they prefer certain economic uh, model. After the colonial time, they prefer to have this socialism as their mode of economic platform at the time. But they become liberal in terms of, I mean, they identify as progressive because First of all, the idea of economic system, at the same time, the idea, they, they, they play with many ideas, thinking that really position them as an elite of the Indonesian. And they are very, they are rich and they are later on, you know, control many business, including one of the founder or the figures, also the 
uh, father of what our security minister uh, Prabowo Subianto. That's also uh, you see the pattern or the continuity what have been happened or occurred at the 50s and now we have quite similar but uh, minus the economic system basically because they, they are basically different different generations right. So there's always been an association with the more educated, more affluent yes. uh, sliver of society, e- even dating back to the 1950s. Yeah. I would imagine, you know, uh, as I said, after the 1950s, you know, through a, through a violent regime transition, we ended up with three decades of Sahado's rule. But, but after that, there's been obviously uh, democratization and, and, and great scope for political organizing over the past two decades. What sort of efforts have we seen in that time to... I guess organize or mobilize a progressive liberal section of the of the of Indonesian society. Yeah, you're right by pointing out that after 1965 the new order really crashed the progressive movement in terms of the grassroots movement, right? The support the supporters at the grassroots level. That's basically, you know, vanished after 30 years and People or friends or movement who try to build that again find it really, really difficult because three decades that's a long time to have the remainder or the former activists or former progressive roots to build on that this uh, new movement. That's the thing with the progressive that I uh, missed to mention earlier. They don't have a strong grassroots because it, it's really a matter of thinking, right? Ideas, discourse. It's not really that make it different compared to Indonesia in the 60s with the uh, you know, Partai Komunis Indonesia, Indonesian Communist, pa- Communist Party, which really grassroots oriented, mobilized, educated citizens, basically, right? That's just not the way the progressive Indonesian politics after Reformasi are, you know, because it's really, it's, there are some, but very, very limited compared to the one that has been mobilized by Partai Komunis Indonesia. So I guess that's make it different compared to what we are discussing now, what so-called progressive, progressive really in terms of ideas, rather than not, not really on the organizing the population or the citizens on their rights and on protesting and, you know, become a group that can have a strong bargaining power to the, you know, ruling parties or whatever. There are discontinuity, even though there are continuity in terms of this segmented urban population and educated one, but at the same time, there is a discontinuity in terms of organizing them and mobilize them and use them as a grassroots politics. It's fascinating to, to see how that discontinuity has such a long legacy in terms of the difficulties of organizing for a movement that, as you say, has, has never really been concerned with grassroots politics in any case. I mean, nevertheless, when we think of, I guess, the sorts of things you described at the beginning of the podcast, you know, a thought that challenges conservative religious positions, looks to affect social change. I guess one of the examples that we frequently hear discussed is the liberal Islamic network. Jill, would that be a, a good example of an attempt to I guess, mobilize or popularize progressive thought in Indonesia after the end of the Sahara regime? Yeah, certainly. That's one of the examples. But again, that's uh, remain at the level of discourse and ideas and thinking, small group discussion, discussion through the... We used to have a couple of years ago this email list 
on I, basically ideas, spread ideas and spread the readings and suggesting and discussion, you know, have the discussion, series of discussion. But again, that's really still, I think it's really limited because they, they are really progressive in terms of challenging the conservative values, particularly on Islam. Like, you know, you are basically have a freedom to interpret. That's really controversial. You, you cannot interpret Quran, basically. You just to, to follow certain imam that's already interpreted, right? Because we are human. We are, we are That's really progressive. But then it's really limited in terms of discourse and thinking, Dave. You've written with colleagues this article about the Indonesian Solidarity Party using the acronym PSI that emerged to contest the 2019 election with a progressive social agenda. How direct a descendant is that PSI of the the PSI of the 1950s um, or of a movement like Jill, the, the Liberal Islamic Network? There is no connection between the old PSI in the 50s and the millennial PSI or Partai Solidaritas Indonesia in 2019 election. Only there have similarities in terms of, as I mentioned, social base. They are educated, they are young, and they live in the urban area. But in between them, based on my research, we identify that there is this connection between Partai Solidaritas Indonesia with the Jaringan Islam Liberal or JIL, Islamic Indonesian Liberal Network. There are two things. First, in terms of foundation of the party, supported by many Islamic liberal figures at, at the same time who are also involved in, active in, as a pollster, as the political party uh, expert. That's the first connection. The second connection is on the way the party, this new party, try to promote certain progressive idea. For example, they are very, very critical on the polygamy practices. They are very critical the way dominant or the way Islamic traditional conservative understand violence, sexual violence. So that's in terms of progressive, in terms of thinking, in terms of ideas that we identify there is this connection or there is this continuity from the earlier Islamic liberal Indonesian network, Jill with the PSI. I mean, when we think about this new PSI that contested the 2019 election, and you mentioned their opposition to polygamy, highlighting the the issue of violence against women, sexual violence, and the need to take action on that. Was highlighting that sort of progressive agenda, do you think, really the goal of the party's founders in establishing PSI, or, or what was the goal of their organization? I think as a party, their goal is to get voters, right? And this is the issues of protection for sexual violence against women, Sharia law, polygamy. There's always sensitive issues and people will react automatically, you know, really like quickly on this. So in a, in a way, I, I noticed that it's a kind of provoking the public for them to get attention. And from there, then you they recognize, oh, there are these parties that really outspoken about it, right? And never hide being really honest that this is our problem with, you know, with this existing conservative law. I, I guess that's just the idea, that's the strategy to, to, to get attention from the public. Because when I talked to Grace Natalie, the former leader of PSI, the attention is basically to promote pluralism in Indonesian society. 
because before 2019, we heard that there are many trends, what uh, academic called conservative turn in Indonesia, and they want to shake it. They want to do something about it by keep promoting the pluralism that the very features of Indonesian society and, you know, is getting in danger or getting difficult to keep. But we can really see that when we go to the, their discourse, it's not really Indonesian pluralism, right? It's basically critics to first Indonesian conservative Islamic practices. And the second is on the violence or sexual violence protection. We kind of miss what's the, where's the pluralism here, right? So that's why I we think that the whole controversial is basically a way to get public attention. And the pluralism aspect is presented by Grace Natalie herself, who is the Chinese-Indonesian and female, the first chair of PSI. And they also have this other group of members that quite frequently, you know, be in the press or in the media to show their pluralism or plurality among the PSI activists. But again, we can really see the difference here in terms of the discourse that they brought and they present to public and their very, very idea of Indonesia, to protect Indonesian pluralism, to promote and protect Indonesian pluralism. It just feels like many differences in terms of the strategy. But I think to get back to my point, we identified that this is a way to, to attract public attention then promote the party, which is very new in 2019 election. Now, you mentioned you know, at its core as a political party, the goal of this contemporary PSI was to gain voters and votes. How did they go about building their electoral support and building their political party? As the new party, compared to other political parties, they basically has no strong support or financial support because party business is very, very expensive in Indonesia. As a requirement, for instance, you need to have party branch first at the national level and half the province, you know, we have 33 provinces and then from the 30 provinces, you have, you know, regulation numbers of district or kabupaten, district or cities where you need also to have branches and go down until the uh, village level. And that's really, really expensive. So, I mean, if you want to establish a party, you basically need a lot of uh, logistic and money. And they, I think PSI really understand that that's uh, quite hard for the new parties to do that. So they, way, the way they try to gather uh, electoral support is through social media. And why social media? Because they aim to the young people who are basically daily with their gadget, you know. Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. So their strategy or their channel to gain electoral support has been really unique, again, compared to other parties because they basically use social media as a main tools to garner uh, electoral supports simply because they are aware of their limitations and to establish uh, branches nationally from Sabang to Merauke, that's quite a lot too. And then they kind of being realistic seems to be focused on the young people, urban, and most are those who use social media. Now, of course, even getting the attention of sort of a young urban slice of the population through social media is, is not cheap. Yeah. Of course, in your paper on the party, you and your colleagues highlight Jeffrey Giovanni, a prominent Indonesian business person, as the, as the party's key 
financial backer and, and also for the 2019 election having a position within the within the party structure. Also mentioned that the party figures had sort of said to you that they had also received donations from large corporations. Now, why would a party like PSI be attractive to big business in Indonesia and, and to a figure like Jeffrey Giovanni? Yeah, uh, Dave, as I mentioned, our party um, business is really expensive. You just need lots or maybe unlimited amount of money to really have a strong network of parties all over Indonesia. So I think any political parties will be attracted to business people or big business because they basically need that to establish the party. This is also the reason of the why small parties now try to amend the, the regulation that seems to favor more to big parties rather than to small parties. It's basically close the door for smaller parties who want to do something or want to mobilize support, but the regulation is really hard on them. So essentially, it's not just about the PSI who are attractive to big business because of their money, but any of the political parties who want to be listed in the election will need big business or business people. And from the business people or big business point of view, Basically, they support all candidates, all parties, right? Because they're playing safe. That's how usually the case in many countries as well. But the attractiveness of PSI is really, they give a bit different features compared to other existing political parties. Many of the members of PSI used to be media anchor, uh, used to be a host in many media, including Grace Natalie herself, the chair of PSI. And there are also other, Isyana Bagus Oka, for instance, also an anchor at the national TV. They're basically physically attractive, right? And there are many, perhaps, business people that think, oh, this is the futures of Indonesian political parties uh, led by young people. And then I guess that's to election is always a party and let's make the party stronger or whatever by supporting this young uh, people initiative through PSI. Now... I mean, you mentioned it's an inescapable factor, the political system, that parties need money. They'll tend to source that in donations from the business community. Obviously, patronage politics and really predatory forms of patronage politics are a very ubiquitous feature of Indonesian politics. And we certainly have seen analysts express the view that this funding from big business of PSI made the party indistinguishable from other established clientelist political parties. How do you view those sorts of criticisms of PSI? Are, are, are those fair? Um, yeah and no. <laughs> I mean, in a way, they try to build a new traditions of parties by young people with the all idealism, right? But at the same time, I think they also aware this is not going to work without the financial support or clientelistic practices one way or another. But at the same time, they try to introduce new ways of gather the financial support. For instance, they create open donation for the, from the public to support them and making innovative ways basically to support or to collect money. But I mean, it is a good way, but at the same time, if you learn about Indonesian political parties, that just so hard to get big money or big donation from public in a short, very short time. That's why many of the scholars being so 
critical to PSI with this way of introducing new things within the context of stubborn clientelistic politics in Indonesia, including Mudoviru also very, very critical to these parties. And, you know, it's like a gimmick, basically, just very, very, you know, there's nothing there, right? But I guess, again, for the newcomer or the young Indonesian who just start politics, who just start joining politics and understand political parties, this way of strategies introducing new things can be a new thing, can be, oh, okay, this is interesting that they try to be take distance from the existing clientelistic political parties system, but and then it's introducing new, new ways. It's just a way to firm or to confirm their reform, reform, quote-unquote, attitude, right? Very quite uh, attractive for the young people, newcomer in this uh, world of political parties. So I can understand the criticism, but at the same time, if you look at it from a different point of view, from the uh, young people perspective, that can be really a way of attracting young people to be in politics. When you mention this focus on young people and the ways that PSI tried to present a different image that would appeal particularly to young people, I guess one of the things I find fascinating in your research on the party is superimposed on that focus on youth is a real urban-rural divide. Sort of PSI branding itself not as the party of youth but as the party of urban youth and the party's own candidates in rural areas as you found shunning some of the party's more progressive positions, particularly around polygamy and sexual violence against women. How do we account for this? Is it the case that rural and urban constituencies are just so different in Indonesia that a party can't appeal to both? Or could we see this as something of a strategic error from PSI to focus on urban youth rather than than youth more generally? Yeah, yeah. This is also what, during our field work, we find it really strong as well in our paper to see how the expression, political expression among the urban Indonesian and the rural Indonesian are just different. But at the same time, because of the regulations set that all parties should be national parties, right? So there is no way you can get away from your rural voters. You just need to be there and show yourself and then get voters if possible so then this is how I mean our point of discussion earlier on this urban educated middle class you know we used to just live in the urban area and understand their friends their you know community and can easily express their ideas to them to be situated in a completely different setting or social space rural well, there are also middle class and lower class, a mixture, and in, in terms of cultural aspect, is more conservative, and PSI just need to adjust with it. Otherwise, you know, nobody care. Otherwise, you, you will not get anything. So that's been a struggle from the parties, but at the same time, I think also show the limitation on, if you are want to be progressive in your parties by you know, by promoting ideas on gender equality, anti-sexual violence against women, and, you know, being critical to Sharia law, you just don't have any supporters at the rural area. Rural area where predominantly many conservative values are there in daily life. 
So this case of Dara Nasution, one of the PSI candidate in North Sumatra, she originally from North Sumatra in Pematang Siantar, but she struggled to convey the message from the national party platform, you know, to promote this pluralism because in her area the Islamic leaders become the main source of social and daily practices in terms of religion. What the Ustad or the religious leader said, that's what will be follow up or practiced by the, by the population. It's just hard to be against these Islamic leaders or this Ustad in her campaign area, in her electorate area. So, and she adjusts basically because otherwise there's no way you can get into the daily understanding of the of the voters there. The same with the one in the Malang. She just turned into, you know, classical, old-fashioned way of doing campaign, basically, because that's the way the language is understood by the voters there. So, again, I think the way the PSI try to experiment with their parties and then, you know, send their candidate to the electoral area in the rural area shows really, like, how divided the Indonesian society is between the urban and rural area in terms of thinking in terms of discourse in terms of way of understanding things right so that's really interesting I, we also find it really interesting well, that at the end they somehow kind of make a consensus uh, on the, the existing situation which is different from you know their urban area and their jakarta style centric of expressing ideas i guess more broadly does this lack of resonance of progressive liberal ideas in rural areas, perhaps beyond the middle class in urban areas, basically rule out political parties as a mechanism, elections as a mechanism to advance progressive positions in Indonesia? That's a quite interesting question, Dave, and quite difficult to answer. Party is still recognized as the only way during the election to understand or to gather support from your voters, assuming that your voters support the idea or the platform of the party, right? But at the same time, we know many studies, academic, showing that there's no really such a party. What is there is connection, pattern-client relationship. And from the voters' perspective, whoever paid them for the vote, vote buying, that's what they like. Once every five years, right? Even though it's not all like that, but it's just PSI in one way in the rural area seems to be following this classical path of political parties. But at the same time, in the urban area, they try their best to establish new tradition despite the limitation of it, right? So I guess they are playing in both sides within their own context of urban and, and rural, you know what I mean? Like they are adjusting quite quickly what should be in the rural area and where their main base is in the urban area. Obviously, in 2019, there was this 4% electoral threshold that PSI fell well short of. I mean, does that simply reflect that urban-rural divide and the small size of the educated urban or educated urban youth vote? Um, Or did PSI also not perform particularly well among that urban youth? No, they fell at the national level, Dave. Uh, national threshold, but they did quite well at the provincial or city level, like in Jakarta, Semarang, Surabaya, Bandung, yeah, big cities in Java again, yeah, and in some areas outside Java, which is maybe one or two seats. 
but like I met one PSI cadres or members who become members of the parliament in Semarang, and she's been really progressive in the way the parties try to establish itself, you know, as progressive, at least in thinking, and the way she tried to do her roles during her time as members of the parliament at Semarang City, I find it quite ideal in a way, like, because she's new and she listened carefully what the constituent wants. Well, of course, there's still some, you know, kind of individual services to the community. What I mean by, like, this fire distinguisher, whatever you need, I'll solve it, you know, but not really systematic, but still, she responds to her constituent. So it's not really the whole fail in terms of a way addressing or conveying the message, the party message, because there are many cases at the district level, city level that doesn't require this national threshold. I think they are really function well as members of the parliament to their constituent. So it's not really entirely a fail, but I think this is a good step for them if they want to rerun again or establish new parties you know, renew their requirements to the KPU, Indonesian Commission of Election, and then 2024 run again. They are become this 2019 result at the city level, become a base for their future plan. I mean, PSI is not faring well in polling at present. I think in the latest Indicator poll in in December, they received about 0.4% support. But do you see the presence of those MPs in provincial and city legislatures as a support base they can build on for 2024? Yeah, yeah. That's what I uh, noticed in some of the cities in Indonesia. Although, again, to return to the main point of the main uh, platform, party platform agenda of progressive politics, uh, like anti-Sharia law, being critical to conservative practices, not just Muslim, but also all religious-related policy, or to anti-sexual violence. It's kind of a drift away, in a way, like the, the members of the parliament who make it to, to in 2019, kind of business as usual as a member of parliament, basically, right? Because this only happens during the campaign, that only these three ideas of progressive can attract public attention when you campaign. But when you once you be there, you are successful become to become a member of the parliament, you just need to deal with daily political parties, parliament life. And then that's basically mobilize your support, maintaining your supporters, your constituent, and that kind of gone, this whole progressive. I guess, yeah, I guess that's really interesting with the PSI because... There are seems to two different worlds: the world of election and the world of once you become a member of parliament. Uh, you know, it sounds like then, if PSI do recontest in 2024, you know, we might have a clearer idea of the longer-term significance of the party and its impact on on Indonesian politics. But nevertheless, even looking at this stage, are there lessons we can draw from the experience of PSI? for the prospects of progressive politics in Indonesia? The Indonesian society, I think, has changed a bit now, Dave, in terms of generations, in terms of awareness on rights, in terms of 
again issues such as sexual violence against women, right? And you can really see that again in the context of urban society. So I guess by PSI will be will attract supporters to bring these issues. And at the same time, at least 2019, Dave, there are no parties that address these issues. So for those who are really see that this is a very pressing issues in Indonesia and society, you know, with the increased numbers of sexual violence conducted by, I don't know, teacher or whatever has become, has colored the Indonesian media over the past one year or so. Even though things change, yeah, now many parties try to accommodate and see that there's a strategic issue, especially for women voters living in the urban area and wants to have this equality. I guess in the next future, PSI will, if they still promote this progressive idea for the urban voters, they still be attractive. Unless the other political parties take these issues with them as well and promote them as well. And then there are many plurality of parties that bring this issue. But I think, again, for the Indonesian politics of parties bringing these progressive issues into the formal political parties agenda is really important because, again, the Indonesian society has changed. They are more aware that this state does not function, party does not function because on the specific issues on sexual violence against women, you know, the undang-undang or regulations, the bill on eradication of sexual violence. That's uh, big things over the past two or three years that public pay attention on. And PSI is one of the parties that already started bring that issues in the platform of the party. Now, Linda, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for coming on Talking Indonesia today to share your insights. It's been great. Thanks to you. Thanks to you too, Dave. That was Dr. Amalinda Savirani, coordinator of the PhD program in the Faculty of Political and Social Sciences at Universitas Gajamada, and one of the authors of Floating Liberals, Female Politicians, Progressive Politics, and PSI in the 2019 Indonesian election. See the episode blog page for the link. Talking Indonesia returns on 17 February with new co-host Tito Ambio. Until then, as always, you can find the entire archive of Talking Indonesia episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.